Hey everyone, this is Achuta Baba from Nightlight Astrology. Happy Monday, everybody. I'm glad to be back after a one-week break that I took. I hope that you guys have had a nice start to your new year. Uh, today, we are going to uh, dive into Mars's upcoming square to Neptune, which is perfecting this week. So that is our goal for today. Um, also, just a note that um, we are every day slowly and methodically working our way through delivering uh, Kickstarter rewards. And also, uh, it's taking, you know, it takes a while for us to also respond to all the emails that are coming in, people having questions about how to receive their reward, or they can't find the link or something like that. So we have a, a team of people who are also, you know, trying to address the emails that are coming in every day. So but if for any reason, you're not hearing from us, it could be going into your spam folder. So be sure you check that or you can always email us to info at nightlight astrology if you're having any uh, issue with collecting the reward from your donation. So thanks, everybody for that. And let's dive into Mars Neptune. So first of all, let's put the real time clock up on the screen. Feels nice to be back in the swing of things this week. I've missed you guys. I hope you've been well. So here we can see Mars and Sagittarius making a square with Neptune and Pisces. Now, this is going to perfect. You can see it perfecting tomorrow. That's January 11th. And it'll still be in the air all the way through the end of the week. It gets about a three degree range. So looking until all the way to Friday, Saturday. <clears throat> now, um, this Mars-Neptune dynamic is also brought to you by a newly empowered Jupiter. Jupiter is just having moved into the sign of Pisces is in a very empowered position. So you get that really fiery, prophetic Jupiterian feeling behind this Mars-Neptune square. So today, what I want to do is just talk to you guys a little bit about Mars-Neptune and what you might see or notice from this combination on an archetypal level. To do that, I'm going to read you a couple different passages. Uh, one, the, the main one I'm going to read you is from one of my favorite books ever written on Neptune, which is called Nep The Astrological Neptune and the Quest for Redemption by the famous Liz Green. So uh, this book is like one of my Bibles, uh, when it gets my, it's my Neptune Bible, I guess you could say, I'll hold it up again so you can see it. And uh, let's see here. So, um, so here is what she says. The contact of Mars and Neptune have been much maligned in astrological literature. Ebertine mentions weakness as well as sickness, addiction, dislike of work and fanaticism. He concedes that inspiration might be a product of the benign aspects, but he's clearly reluctant to find anything pleasant in this complex pairing of planets. The hard aspects in particular are associated with sexual abuse and black magic. The creative dimension of Mars-Neptune is sometimes described, but is usually limited to the actor or musician, and the contact is often seen as dangerous to be fought against or, quote, transcended. There is no doubt that Mars-Neptune can manifest in problematic ways. So can any Neptune aspect, or for that matter, any planetary aspect at all. But we need to look beneath Mars-Neptune's behavior pattern to the meaning at the core, to understand why this contact appears with regularity in the charts of those with serious drinking or drug problems, as well as serious physical disabilities of the Neptunian kind. Tell us, Liz. Mars is the sun's fighting arm. The functions of aggression and desire are fundamental to independent physical and psychological life. 
By wanting something and becoming angry or frustrated, a child begins to separate from the original fusion with the mother and forms a sense of his or her own body identity and personal potency. In this sense, Mars is like the Babylonian fire god Marduk, who battles the sea mother to create the world. We become ourselves first through what we want, and our primary desires are physical, passional, and life-defending, long before solar consciousness transforms raw libido into what we call goals and aspirations. Talking about identity on an abstract level is insufficient. Sooner or later, one will be called upon to make a stand and fight for one's autonomy in outer life. If the function of Mars is ailing, one cannot properly separate, and one may experience difficulty in actualizing whatever goals and wishes emerge in adult life. Or one may dissociate altogether from desires and aggressive feelings, pushing them into the unconscious where they fester at leisure. This buried rage may then be expressed covertly toward others or internalized against oneself. It's interesting to me that she's going down this particular um, pathway with Mars Neptune right away by saying, look, um, first of all, highly misunderstood aspect. A lot of it has to do with uh, individuation with the need to become ourselves by uh, honoring something of our raw drive toward our, our, our raw sort of desire drive. At any rate, she goes on. Blaming parents for creating this problem is too simplistic an approach. Although the childhood environment may exacerbate Mars conflicts, seeds must fall on fertile soil in order to sprout. Mars Neptune inherently avoids any over, overt expression of the will because of Neptune's longing for fusion. Eden is a world without Mars, for anger and oneness are mutually exclusive. In paradise, the animals do not eat one another, nor is an individual initiative, the natural outgrowth of desire, welcome in the garden. It is construed as disobedience. The fusion is broken, the original sin is committed, and expulsion from the garden follows inexorably from this transgression. Oedipal desires are a sin in Eden, not because of the erotic fusion that they demand, but because mother or father will not countenance competition. Mars Neptune will therefore seek to fulfill its desires while ensuring that no one is offended. Neptune's receptivity to collective feeling transforms Mars. Instead of the thuggish warrior of Homer's Iliad, he emerges a subtle magician who understands the power of participation mystique and the enormous appeal of the word we. Mars Neptune can enter others' dreams and longings expressing I want with such delicacy that it seems that everybody wants it. This can be a great gift expressed most typically in Neptunian er arenas, the arts and the therapeutic field. It may also be a great asset to the politician and military leader. In all these fields, the ability to invoke participation mystique is necessary. The actor must be attuned to the audience. The therapist or counselor must have compassionate identification with the client, as well as the ability to draw out feelings and insights in a subtle and non-aggressive way. The political or military leader must inspire the hearts of his or her followers. Without this, the imposition of his discipline will only provoke rebellion. Mars Neptune, like Dionysus, is a seducer, but sometimes as a collective, we need to be seduced. This longing lies at the core of religious worship, as well as the catharsis of the musical or theatrical performance. It's a feeling of shared aspiration without which we are abandoned in the wasteland, alone and without hope. In the world of Mars-Neptune, the ecstasy has a goal. 
this is when one of the most helpful passages for me to understand a lot of my own uh, psychology, right? Uh, I was born with Mars uh, in a broad opposition to Neptune um, and, uh, you know, grew up the son of a preacher, right? And uh, uh, Mars-Neptune aspects in my own father's chart. So it's a really interesting dynamic, the way of, of Mars-Neptune, how to be um, charismatic, forceful, competitive, driven, ambitious, but to do so in a way that is also that taps into that Neptunian tendency toward collectivism, toward we, and toward uh, a sense of a shared uh, vision, uh, participation, mystique, in other words, in her words, um, that sense that we're all a part of something, driving towards similar goals that are transcendent. Uh, so this Mars-Neptune contact in the sky sort of taps into that. Um, let's keep going. The, still, the dilemma lies in the integrity of the goal and how it is pursued. Mars innately self-centered desires when diluted with Neptunian waters must include others if the individual's needs are to be fulfilled. Thus, desire is purged of sin because it is ostensibly aimed toward everyone's salvation. This is the spirit of the Crusades. You might remember me talking about this uh, a little bit when I spoke about, um, uh, I, I talked about uh, Mars coming in contact with Neptune when I uh, previewed the moon cycle. And I mentioned this is kind of like a Joan of Arc, Holy Crusade feeling in which Appalling barbarity was sanctioned in the name of redemption, in which the fish of the Tiamat is visible beneath the holy trappings. It is also the spirit of, of an Alexander Dubeck, who had Mars sextile Neptune, not sure if I said that correctly, fighting selflessly for his country. Heroic martyrdom has many faces, some of them closely allied to terrorism and genocide, some of them deeply noble. So she goes on a little ways. She says, aggression can be masked by apparent docility and rage can lurk beneath the surface, may become the chief factor behind drug and alcohol addictions, which reflect anger and vengeance against life as much as the desire to escape life. I remember when I was in my early 20s and Pluto was activating the Mars-Neptune opposition in my chart. And I went through a phase of uh, pretty serious addiction for about two years with opiates. I wrote about this in my book. And... Um, when I went and worked with ayahuasca, it was very much like a, a Mars-Neptune homeopathy, like treats like, use a substance to treat issues with substance. And this, um, one of the things that came up was recognizing how much frustration, uh, the feeling of not being a part of something bigger, an un, uh, confusion about how to use the will and the feeling of underlying rage and, and frustration and a feeling of like, almost like uh, my life had some quality of philosophical impotence. Like where, where is the philosophical meaning of life? What am I driving toward that's bigger than just my own personal desires and aims? This is Mars-Neptune stuff, and it was being activated by Pluto. And the lack of the feeling of that, it's underlying rage, addiction to opiates, to, to dull it all over, um, alcohol to um, sex as well. These were all features of uh, you know, promiscuity, unhealthy, I'm not saying there's anything unhealthy about sex, but unhealthy, promise, promiscuous behavior, drug addiction, this kind of stuff in my early 20s, while Pluto was activating that Mars-Neptune opposition in my chart. When a will, when, and you're, and as Liz Green says, we need a sort of transcendental or transcendent sense of 
participation. So that the will becomes more selfless when it hits Neptune. It's like it needs that to function well in the world. Either that or it'll try to um, drown itself in a feeling of uh, pointlessness. So uh, she says, when a will at channel cannot be found for Mars, Neptune's romantic heroism, political, military, scientific, artistic, it can be sought in darker waters. That's when she goes on to talk quite a bit about addiction. A Mars Neptune may also elect like Charles Manson, who had them in a conjunction to play the anti-hero who destroys others and himself rather than endure the dreariness of a decent but unglamorous life. For Mars Neptune, aggression and desire cannot easily be directed outward into life because of the fear of separation this invokes. It may seem better not to desire at all. Sexual disinterest and general apathy are common accompaniments to alcoholism and drug addiction. The death wish is obvious in these expressions, and so is the element of masochism. I remember one of the most alarming things that I came to realize in some of my earlier ayahuasca ceremonies was this feeling of, um, wow, this addiction, this Mars-Neptune opposition in my own chart, which I didn't yet understand, but um, this addictive behavior is... Um, uh, like I'm hurting myself. And I, it was, it was, it didn't, I had zero idea that I was doing that, that it was, that there was a, a feeling of self-harm. Oh, let's hurt myself because I have not yet found a higher purpose or sense of meaning for my existence or my life. So I'll hurt myself as a response. Humans actually do that like every day, year round for going on 12 years of my life. I've talked to human beings who hurt themselves because they don't feel like they're doing life well enough. That can be a Mars-Neptune dynamic. The same may be said of Mars-Neptune's black magic. It's difficult to define this term in any sensible way, for one is reminded of a Dennis Wheatley novel with incantations to Asmodeus and the remains of sacrificed chickens in the basement. Yet there will always be people who are happy to avail themselves of Neptunian mass vulnerability to achieve the power they want. Most Politicians dabble in a little of it one way or another, although usually without the chickens. Political slogans are a form of incantation, and political symbols are a species of amulet. Black magic may be observed in anyone who, because of his or her own wounds and insecurities, manipulates the unconsciousness of another person to achieve omnipotence, the omnipotence which Neptune secretly craves. What differentiates Mars-Neptune black magic from Mars-Neptune white magic is the consciousness of the individual and the personal integrity that they have managed to build. Anyway, she goes on, but it's a brilliant passage. If you've never read this book, it's easily the most wonderful psychological archetypal exploration of Mars-Neptune or Mars, excuse, excuse me, Neptune that I've ever read. Um, just fantastic. There's another book that I love. Um, that gives some really good, keen insight into Mars, the war god. We don't make room for Mars as a divine reality. Most of the time we think of Mars as a problem that needs to be solved. You're in trouble if you think that a god is a problem that needs to be solved or an aspect of the one, you could even say, that needs to be solved. James Hillman drew this out uh, really nicely in one of his most famous books called A Terrible Love of War. He's talking about the archetypal reality of war. And I want to read you a few passages. <clears throat> he says, since war's autonomy generates its own momentum, war has no cause other than itself. Is war something which really does have a life of its own? Asks Barbara Ehrenreich. War's inhumanity, 
tells war's truth. Its origins lie outside the human sphere, beyond human control. We have been misled, she argues, pinning war onto persons, politics, economics, gender. It is the autonomy of war as an institution that we have to confront and explain. Her explanation is remarkably imaginative. She conceives war on the model of a living organism, a self-replicating pattern of behavior possessed of a dynamism not unlike that of living things. Suddenly, war emerges as a fictive figure, a robotic golem, a, quote, brutal giant stalking his human prey. As in these lines from Thomas Sackville and quoted by Michael Walzer, lastly stood war in glittering arms he clad, with visage grim, stern looks, and blackly hued. In his right hand a naked sword he had, that to the hilts was all with blood imbrued. And in his left that kings and kingdoms rude, famine and fire he held, and therewithal he raised towns and threw down towers and all. We are entering the territory of myth and approaching the war god himself. <clears throat> in short, Unless we imagine war as inhuman in the transcendent sense, inhuman as the autonomy and livingness of a divine power, war as a god, our secular models, as Susan Sontag said, cannot imagine and cannot understand. Now we can see that war's inhumanity derives from war's autonomy, and that this autonomy reveals war's nature as a mythic enactment, explaining both its bloodletting as ritual sacrifice and its immortality, that it can never be laid to rest. He goes on later to say, Mars and Venus are always in the bed of the image. He's talking about the image of war. Even when the tale says they fly off and away from each other, they remain an inseparable archetypal conjunction where Mars is Venus will be. Love and beauty, seduction, glamour, pleasure, intimacy, and softness shall accompany Mars wherever he goes. These Camp followers belong to his battle train. The world of war's horrors and fear is also a world of desire and attraction. We have come to another place where understanding our subject is again most baffled. War's beautiful horror, its terrible love and exhilarating fusion called the sublime. It could be claimed that war on TV and movies and played on video games offers a window into this sublime. These mediated wars provide an, an aestheticized terror, battle and death as spectacle. Similar to a work of art, war is framed and plotted. Its sequences selected, the whole unified and limited in time. You can stop it anywhere, turn off the TV anytime. So he goes on in this book to make a case for the inherently mythical, archetypal, divine uh, presence of Mars as a god. And a god is eternal, which is to say that war, although we have a level at which war is inhuman, terrible, linked to all sorts of uh, divisiveness and greed and selfishness and power and dominance and all sorts of terrible things, and yet it remains. Brutality, force, domination, uh, these are things that exist in the animal kingdom. They exist all over planet Earth. They exist in ourselves. Um, even in just the way we observe the physical universe, the colliding of uh, the colliding of forms in space, explosions, uh, violent catharsis. This is part of what is in the Bhagavad Gita, in chapter eleven. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. Chapter 11, where Krishna reveals his universal form 
to Arjuna on the battlefield. This is God showing itself in its universal form. O Lord of Lords, so fierce of form, please tell me who you are. I offer my obeisances unto you. Please be gracious to me. I do not know what your mission is, and I desire to hear of it. The blessed Lord said, time I am destroyer of the worlds, and I've come to engage all people. So you can see and feel the autonomy of Mars in our world every day. If you watch sports, it's there. If you watch uh, anything, any kind of gossipy stuff, even if it's just pretty trivial, this is what who's doing this and who's doing what and oh, the drama of it politically, in the entertainment world, whatever world you, you might follow. Reality TV is filled with it. Competition is basic in the marketplaces. Everything in nature is eating other things to survive. Life eats life to be life. If you're an, even if you're an activist, a lot of what defines activism is the good fight. Well, there's a lot of different kinds of activists and I'm not getting into what is or isn't the good fight, not here to define that today. But I don't know one person fighting on behalf of a belief who doesn't think what they're fighting for is good. So fighting is very basic to our everyday life. Speed, intensity, catharsis, to be moved, to be penetrated by other people's minds and thoughts, sexual penetration. The presence of Mars is not just a problem, it's a reality. The Buddha said uh, famously that uh, all beings feel this deep sense of fear and anxiety because we, we know that we're going to die. We know that uh, things are impermanent and we resist that. A lot of our lives is built around dealing with existential anxiety about our own precarious situation. And so some of the ways that spiritual traditions around the world describe the process of waking up is first and foremost to accept the presence of all dimensions of experience, which include fear, anxiety, war, confrontation, conflict, dominance, uh, greed, suffering, Unless you accept that these are somehow a part of what is, um, you stand little chance to work through the presence of those things within yourself. And so whatever spirituality we claim to have, how real can it be unless we've dealt with and not just conquered those things. There's a lot of Mars can be very heroic, especially when you kind of pair it with the sun. Let's overcome all the darkness. But in... You look at the pantheon of gods, for example, in India. There's so many gods in India. I've had the pleasure when I've been in India several times to visit a lot of different types of temples, not just the ones that I, the Krishna, you know, the, the, the Krishna forms that are dear to me. Uh, but in visiting a lot of different temples, you notice that gods have many, many arms, carrying many, many weapons. Many gods carry, like Krishna, the Sudarshan Chakra cutting people's heads off with it. It's the weapon of time. It's hard for, in my upbringing, at least in the sort of Christian West, it was hard to imagine that God included 
all of those darker qualities that, that there's that that there's room for a god like mars you know but unless we understand the god of war not simply as the absence of peace or the um some kind of problem that we need to fix or solve if we don't if we can understand it as a reality unto its own otherwise we suffer from being at war with war which is a way of saying we become possessed by the war god you can't have an autonomous conscious relationship with the archetype of the war god unless you recognize the war god as an autonomous being as an a, a, an, an archetypal structure inherent in reality inherent in the psyche inherent in the cosmos itself love and strife they're both here you know so you, you to make some room for strife when i grew up in the christian tradition that i grew up in there was really very little room for mars and this was the number one thing that i had to reflect upon when pluto opposed Mars in my natal chart conjoined Neptune. So it was activating that Mars Neptune. I had gone down a path that really anything about Mars, the war gods, Kali, the, uh, the, the, the aspect of God that beheads things, that smashes planets, the universe as explosive, you know, that was not an acceptable part of, I mean, God, maybe God could be the judge and God could punish people or something like that. The punitive judgmental aspect of God that you should be afraid of. Maybe there's a little bit of Mars in that, but I was never in the church and no fault of, if I'm not blaming anyone, it just wasn't really a part of how I was taught or raised to think that God has this, the, the in cruelty in terror. Yes, I'm here too. I'll never forget, I was giving a talk at the, uh, Alex Gray, who's a famous psychedelic artist, I uh, was giving a talk at his museum in New York City one time, and uh, he was there too. We were telling, it was a storytelling night, and I was telling a story uh, uh, just after him, so it was a hard, you know, it's like a hard act to follow, and he got up on stage, and he told a story about an ayahuasca experience that he had where he was sifting through like a, you know, like a crematorium like, which, you know, by the way, uh, Shiva is uh, often found in crematoriums, you know. Uh, so, and there were just bodies and corpses and death and destruction and ruin. And he was seeing it and just filled with horror until he heard this soft voice. And, and it was, he recognized it as the divine presence saying, can you see me here too? And he, he just couldn't fathom that this was, that, that divinity was to be found in this space too. And if you've ever looked at his artwork, his artwork is, he has a background in anatomical, uh, the human anatomy. So a lot of his artwork is very beautiful when it comes to human anatomy. And he'll often include aspects of the human form that are, you know, brutal skeletons, skulls, things like that, kind of dark. But um but also beautiful. He has a way of weaving together. If you've never seen Alex Gray's psychedelic artwork, it's very beautiful. Um, anyway, got to know him a little bit. Uh, a couple of times, actually, we, we hosted the ayahuasca monologues together and did storytelling nights and stuff like that. And but I'll never forget that one. 
because I could so relate to it going through these ayahuasca experiences, the early thing that the plant medicine seemed to want to convey to me. And remember, this is while that Mars Neptune opposition is being activated by Pluto was um, God is all things, nothing excluded, absolutely nothing excluded. It's very easy to want to say, well, there's stuff I really like, there's stuff that's really pleasant, there's stuff that's obviously like, there's a moral imperative that lives in our hearts. But the existence of darkness, the existence of the divisiveness of Mars and other planets um, that are not as easy to deal with, aren't as fun to talk about, that uh, the existence of those dimensions of divinity and of reality uh, cannot be denied. Otherwise, eventually, you have an encounter with them uh, that uh, is not going to be as pleasant. That's the only way I know how to put it. Unless you can differentiate yourself and uh, the war god, you'll always think that there's something wrong with you. You always think, well, these things live in me. Because first of all, you try to say, well, they're out in the world. Somehow they're not in me. And then over time, you realize, oh, they are in me. And then you try to, you know, try to purge yourself, clean yourself, heal yourself. It's ironic that, you know, I went to the Amazon thinking, oh, I've got to clean myself, purge myself because I'm so dirty. I've got a drug addiction, blah, blah, blah. And I found out, oh, one of your biggest problems is that you think there's something so deeply wrong and flawed with you. You, you haven't realized that, uh, you know, you're, you're living in a divine cosmos. These gods can come and work in and through your psyche. You're relating with them all the time. The plant medicine helped me to differentiate and realize war is the, 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 these archetypes are living autonomous forces that work in and through everything. And I can have a conscious relationship with them, which helps tremendously because otherwise I think there's something wrong with me and I'm trying to deal with uh, a sense of having become the war God. Oh, I'm Mars, which means I'm bad, you know? Instead, we learn to recognize these uh, players in our psyche, and then we can stand to have a more conscious relationship with them. We understand the larger divine reality of Mars, which is what we're saying when we say Mars and Neptune collectively. Put them together, and we're talking about giving Mars some transcendent place, some transcendent meaning in our lives. That's why books like, you know, The Purpose-Driven Life or 10 Steps to Finding Your Purpose or The Mission-Driven Life or 10 Habits of Highly, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, all this kind of stuff. We're always making lists and vision boards. And, you know, why? Because there's this feeling that unless I take that Mars energy and put it towards something bigger than myself, then I will only be dealing with frustration or some inherent sense of selfishness or a failure or an impotency or something like that. So we have to give it some sense of transcendent meaning. So finding that transcendent meaning is a core part of this transit. Even if it's just a week long, it's touching, it's tapping into that. What are you doing with your life? Is there a divine larger sense of purpose? Where does Mars play a role in your life? Have you developed your, you know, have you developed the white magic of, of Mars Neptune? Because if you don't, the, the, the other side is, is troubling. The other side is about becoming all powerful. Uh, the other side is about uh, trying to, is, it can be masochistic, trying to get rid of some inherent flaw that you feel exists in yourself, probably related to 
all the dark Mars stuff, you know. It's every day Mars is in our life if you watch sports. Also, um, if you turn on any news outlet, I don't care if it's on the left or the right, you have people fighting with each other and you have content meant to provoke fear and agitation. Facebook recently admits that a lot of the, the way that it's driven its success has been by to figure out what is divisive and what triggers people because people come back for more. People are it, get addicted to that kind of stimulation. So tell me again, right? You know, tell me again that Venus doesn't love Mars. We think we're addicted to thinking we can, you know, create peace through conflict. Well, let's fight so we can bring about the best world possible. But we have to fight to get there. That's the real fun part of it that we don't like to admit. Venus loves Mars. They're adulterous, illicit lovers. It's taboo to say so, that we like conflict, that we like war, that we like hostility. It's conflict to say, it's, it's taboo, I should say, to say that we love Mars, that Mars is like our uh, illicit lover. But it's true. It's true because Mars isn't going away. Mars has always been here. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't feel complete without some sense that Mars had a larger role to play right now in our lives. It's sort of, that's why he calls it a terrible love of war. It's, a not, a, it's not the purely Venusian type of love, the love for Mars. So all just things to consider. And it's meant today I'm trying to be a little provocative. So if you feel a little provoked by this talk, that's sort of the goal. Because when I read Hillman's book, I feel provoked. Because I don't generally, I'm a pacifist. You know, I'm a vegetarian. I don't, I don't like to kill animals even when I eat um, my food. You know, probably, you know, whoever, uh, you eat differently. I'm not judging you or anything. It's just the way I roll. It's difficult to find a place for Mars in our lives. So the point of Mars-Neptune is if you avoid finding some transcendent place for Mars as an autonomous function in the psyche, as an autonomous God that we deal with, if you can't recognize your love for Mars, the place of Mars, then you will either use it in ways that are destructive, subtle, um, tricky, deceptive. That's the black magic aspect. Uh, you'll, or you'll try to flagellate yourself and purge yourself of, of Mars because it's evil. Like Mars, Neptune for associate, is also associated with the desire to purge. It's associated with genocide get rid of anything that's blemished. So flagellate yourself, get rid of your blemishes. It's, it's associated also with dying for a cause larger than yourself, like a martyr. It can be associated with terrorism and fanaticism, but it can also be associated with having some autonomous, differentiated relationship with Mars that places Mars into a larger uh, cosmos that gives Mars... Um, a place in your mind and your heart that and that it's only then it's only through relationship that we can differentiate because differentiation happens through relationship you want to become someone new you have to relate to other people differently other people are always instrumental in how we change change doesn't happen in a vacuum it also it always happens in relationship you want to change your relationship to the qualities of mars then you have to change your relationship with the God within yourself, but also in how you relate 
to others. And that for Mars Neptune, that means finding some larger uh, way of bringing the reality of Mars to play in your life. So I hope that uh, you guys enjoyed this meditation on um, Mars and Neptune today. Um, I remember, uh, I'll leave you guys with this last, this last thought. Um, I remember that when I was first studying astrology, I was drinking, still drinking a lot of ayahuasca. And uh, there was a ceremony that I had where I saw, I was just starting to understand the archetypes and studying birth charts and stuff. And I had, it was the first time I, oh, I have Mars Neptune. And in ceremony, I was reflecting on Mars Neptune. And I saw when I was a kid, I was a competitive swimmer. And I remember specifically, this is just such an interesting memory, specifically the feelings that I was able to relive in my body of being a competitive swimmer. And I remember how deeply I disliked it. I loved swimming, but how deeply I disliked the, the, the training. And I remember specifically when I chose to do competitive swimming, it was when I didn't make the basketball team. So I didn't make the basketball team. I tried out and didn't make it. And then I decided to do competitive swimming. And I remember the reason that I stuck with it was because I said, well, I can't be good at nothing. I can't be good at nothing. So I don't care if it hurts. I don't care if it's mentally draining or exhausting. I don't care if I don't really like it. I'm going to make myself do this and I'm going to make myself be good at this because I can't be good at nothing. Right. And so my competitive swimming career was marked by this kind of self flagellating. You can't be good at nothing. And that was one of my first glimpses of Mars Neptune. And I walked away from that ceremony going like, Holy shit. Like that's, that's a really intense thing. And I remember such feeling such relief. Like I love to swim. I love swimming, but I, I didn't like competing. I didn't like the competitive, uh, I didn't like the, the competitive aspect of it. And I made myself do it because I thought I was worthless. Isn't that interesting? So anyway, that ceremony, um, I, I reclaimed something of my joy for, for water. It was the weirdest thing because, um, you know, ever since then, and, and in some uh, specific times I can remember after then, when I would go swimming, I would no longer feel like a competitive swimmer in the water. I used to be a competitive swimmer. It was gone. And I just used to think, all right. And I would just think to myself, man, I'm sorry. I did that to myself. No, some people love competitive swimming, just not me. So anyway, uh, okay. That's what I've got for you guys today. I hope you guys are uh, off to a great start to your week. And I look forward to unpacking more of the transits of the week as they come through. Uranus is stationing this week. Mercury is stationing this week. So we've got a lot to talk about. All right, take it easy, everyone. Bye.